Well, good morning, VRBC. So great to see so many faces here today. So great to have folks joining, joining us online. And I'm going to have to start putting on more stage makeup uh, if we've got more uh, powerful cameras. But uh, it is great to have you here for week four of our One Another series, like these aspen trees uh, that look individual above the surface but are deeply connected. We want to be that body of Christ growing deeply connected, growing deeper together in our Lord Jesus Christ. And so uh, we've been looking at, uh, in, with this goal in mind, we've been looking at some of the one another's of the New Testament. Uh, the first week we talked about love one another, which is kind of the umbrella category. And then each week we've been talking about a different aspect of loving one another by like encouraging one another or serving one another. And today we want to talk about praying for one another. And uh, I'd love to um, have you uh, open your Bibles to James chapter 5. We're going to be looking at this privilege that we have of, of praying for one another, a privilege, a responsibility uh, sometimes a missing piece in the life of, uh, of any church. And uh, I'm going to read a passage to you that, to my knowledge, I've never preached a whole sermon on here. And, um, and just full disclosure, I approach this passage with a lot of enthusiasm that I hope you'll see, and also a tiny bit of anxiety, which will probably become clear as well. And so the passage is James chapter 5, and we're going to read verses 13 to 18. So hear the word of the Lord. Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. May God bless the reading of his word. So, a mixture of enthusiasm and nervousness. Why enthusiasm? Well, I hope it's obvious. Uh, James is talking about this vital spiritual discipline of, of prayer, praying individually and praying with other believers in Jesus. And when you study prayer in the Bible, it doesn't take you very long to discover that prayer is this great gateway to spiritual treasure. I mean, if you're going on a spiritual treasure hunt, prayer will show you where the treasure is. Uh, I'm enthusiastic about talking about that today. But perhaps as I was reading through this passage and you were trying to put yourself in the mind of a, a preacher, in the place of a preacher, you were hearing some of the areas where I might have a little bit of nervousness today. As I studied this passage, my head began to encounter so many different questions. Like, what does it mean to call the elders? And in our church, who, who are the elders? Are they staff or church council? Are they deacons? Um, and, and oil. Like, what's up with oil? What kind of oil? Is it olive oil or canola or avocado or motor oil? What, what kind of oil is being called for here? And why? And exactly how do you anoint somebody? 
And what is the prayer offered in faith? And who needs the faith? Is it the person praying or the person being prayed for or, or both? And does God always promise to heal? And if so, is that healing physically or healing spiritually? And, and what does confession have to do with healing? I mean, if somebody's sick and then we're asking them to confess their sin, is that piling on? What, uh, it, does James assume there's some kind of secret sin in their lives? That and so many more questions confronted me. And when I was, uh, I, I tend to write my sermons over a few weeks and it just so happened that with my schedule, I actually had an extra week and, uh, and so I decided to spend an extra week just studying more stuff. And I read and I read and I read and I read and then st I still had questions. And so, uh, and then finally, if you ever had that, you, like, you got all these note cards, but you got to write the paper. And, uh, and I had to write the paper. And so I won't presume to answer all of your questions today. I will try to address the major ones. And I'll also acknowledge that I think there's a great deal of mystery in what James is teaching uh, there's, there's mystery about uh, the extent of sin and, and sickness and healing and forgiveness and what is God's part and what's our part and what is God's will and, and what's going on in our bodies and what's going on in our souls. There's a lot of mystery. And so when I realized I had to eventually write a sermon, like you would expect me to preach a sermon, that, that what I did was I, I, I had still had all these questions, but I said, I'm going to step back and I'm going to try to see the forest. Like, I'm gonna, I want to ask the Lord to show me what are the big themes that we all can uh, say, yeah, I, I think this is, this is the big theme that's supported in this particular section of Scripture. And most importantly, what are the big ways that we can grow deeper together as we study this passage? And so I'm going to try to answer some of the questions that, are, that arise in your mind. But, but my main focus is going to be on these big themes. And the first one became very clear in the first verse of the passage to me. And if I were to summarize it, uh, this first big theme, it would be this. By all means, pray. <laughs> By all means, church, Pray, pray to God. Um, whatever else you do, spend time in prayer. Don't try to live life on your own. Don't try to live life in your own strength. I think this theme is so clear in verse 13. Let's look at verse 13. Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. One commentator says between those two words, trouble and happy lie all of life's experiences. At whatever extreme we find ourselves or anywhere in between, there's a prayer for that. When I was growing up, we had a clothesline in our, in our backyard. Uh, and I had to ask younger staff, do y'all even know what a clothesline is? And, and, uh, and, and, and several did. But, uh, but my mom would basically, you know, the clothesline, two ropes, uh, between a couple poles and she would basically have these clothespins and she would hang wet clothes out on the line and, and, uh, and then they'd dry and they'd smell amazing uh, when we put the clothes on. And uh, I started thinking, you know, that's not a bad image for what James is describing here. Is anybody in trouble, one end of the human spectrum? Is anybody happy, the other end of the spectrum? 
And then everywhere in between, there's a clothespin. There's an opportunity for prayer. Are you in trouble? Are you devastated? Cry out to God. Shoot up an arrow prayer if it's an emergency. Are you joyful? James says, sing a song of praise. In fact, the Greek word is solo, P-S-A-L-L-O is how you would write it in English. It's where we get our word psalm. It's almost like he's saying, are you happy? Write a psalm of thanksgiving or, 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 or pray one that's already been written. Psalm 100, right? Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with joyful song. By all means, pray. I, I wonder if one of the blessings of verse 13 is that it might, it might cause us to expand our prayer repertoire. You know, when I was uh, in high school, my parents bought me a used guitar, and I tried to teach myself how to, how to play. I, I learned a couple chords, and I had a Young Life songbook that was filled with protest songs from the 1960s. Don't ask me why, uh, but, uh, but I, 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 learned, uh, I learned G, and I learned C, and I learned D7, and I even wrote some songs that just had those three chords. And, uh, and I, I learned how to strum out Smoke on the Water on one guitar string. And a buddy taught me how to play the intro to Stairway to Heaven. And that's all I ever learned. Um, and I wonder if maybe for some of us, our prayer life is like that. We know a few chords. <laughs> We, we know the gimme prayer, Lord, give me this, and give me that, and give me this, and give me that, and we know that one really well, and maybe we know just kind of a generalized confession, like, sorry, uh, Lord, sorry about all that, um, but what about all the other prayers? What about all the other clothespins? What about prayers of thanksgiving, or prayers of adoration, or prayers of surrender, or, or, or prayers of celebration, or prayers of lament? What about praying for peace? What about praying for justice? What about praying for strength? What about praying for holiness? What if wherever we are right now, there's a prayer for that? By all means, church, pray. But then as I got to the, the middle part, the, the big middle of our passage, I, I realized that there was another big theme that I think everybody could agree on in this text. And that is not just by all means pray, but by all means pray for one another. In other words, to be a praying church is not just to have hundreds of silo prayers. To be a praying church is to be a church that prays together, that comes together for prayer in large and small groups and prays for one another. The church is to be a place where no deep wound goes unnoticed. The church is to be a place where two or three or more regularly gather and the Holy Spirit is with us praying with us. And, and in the middle of this passage, where so many of our questions come from, uh, there are two kinds of prayer that are singled out specifically. And, and the first is prayer for the body, prayer for the, the human body. And this is where things started to get really challenging for me as I was studying. Verse 14, is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. There's a lot in that one verse, isn't there? You know, James has talked about, in verse 13, about prayers for good days and bad days. And in verse 14, he's talking about prayer for one of the worst ever days. 
That day when our bodies are sick, so sick that we can't bring ourselves to church. Uh, We need to call the church to have them send someone to us. In fact, I I believe this is the only time in the New Testament where um, that, in the original language, that that idea of praying over someone is is used. And presumably, it's meant literally, like the person's on on the mat on the floor in their house. They can't get up. And so we are praying over them in their extreme sickness. And then we're told something that's kind of challenging. The elders are told to anoint that person with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, why oil? Some scholars think oil was used for medicinal purposes because oil was a medicine in the ancient world. You may remember in the parable of the Good Samaritan, one of the things the Samaritan does is anoint the wounds of the the man who's been beaten up with with oil. And so some people think kind of a contemporary translation of verse 14 is basically saying, uh, you know, uh, bring your best medicine and your best prayers. Uh, it's, it's, It's a way of saying calling all prayer warriors and physician referrals. It's kind of a, it's kind of a both and. But we also know that in the Bible, oil was used for spiritual purposes. Uh, Kings and priests were anointed. In Mark 6, Jesus' disciples were sent out, and uh, and it says that they drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. And so some people think that the oil is more for a spiritual purpose. You know, sometimes Jesus would use physical substances like spittle or mud uh, and, and, and he would involve that in, in healing. And so perhaps oil is kind of a physical substance, a way of concentrating our attention on God's power as we pray. I can tell you there have been uh, a few times in ministry where I have been the elder called by a sick person. And I've put a little bit of olive oil in a tiny Tupperware, and I've gone I usually brought a staff member or another church leader with me, and uh, I've gone to that person, and and when the time came, I dipped my forefinger or my thumb in the oil, and I made the sign of the cross on their forehead, and I prayed in the name of the Lord. And I wouldn't necessarily say I understood all the dynamics that were going on. I'm not sure God even wanted me to understand all the mysteries that were going on. I did my best to be obedient to scripture, to go, to anoint, to pray with faith, and to trust God for everything else. I remember uh, uh, I was a part of a a pastor's group for many years, and um, I remember asking this group about about James 5 and how they incorporated James 5 into their pastoral practice. And a friend of mine named Jeff told me he had just preached a sermon on it, and I listened to his podcast, and I liked the sermon so much, I asked him if he'd send me his notes, which he graciously did. And at one point in his sermon, he talked about some different categories of how people respond to the whole notion of divine healing, and I thought it was, I thought it was really interesting. He said, you know, some people you would classify as what he called sensationalists. Maybe we've all seen the, the glammed-up faith healer types who who turn divine healing into theater, you know, and it's, uh, there's a lot of be healed and all that kind of stuff, right? It's a noisy theatrical show. And then Jeff said some people are what he would call confessionalists. They, they put all their eggs in the basket of the 
the, the, the sick person either confessing their sin or professing their faith, and if they're not physically healed, well, they, they messed it up. They didn't have enough faith, or, or they didn't confess all their sin. And then he said, clearly, there are, are quite a few secularists who dismiss any notion of divine healing. It's all hooey as far as they're concerned. And then, this may sound a little technical, but he said that there is a group of people called dispensationalists, and they believe that there was a dispensation in time, the period of the apostles, where God did do divine healing, but when the last apostle died, so did divine healing, and so that kind of thing doesn't happen anymore. And as my friend Jeff was preaching the sermon, he says, you know what, none of those categories fit me, and I agreed, because they don't fit me either. And so as I mentioned, what I've tried to do is I've tried to approach these verses with simple faith, simple trust, to do what the scripture asks and to realize that everything else is above my pay grade. I've tried my best to pray in faith and leave the results to God. But then we're told something that I haven't mentioned yet, uh, but another aspect of prayer. Not just prayer for the body, but notice verses 15 and 16. It says, and the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. There's a lot there. Does does the person realize it, the person who's praying, uh, that, wow, God's going to do this? Is there an assurance of faith in that moment, in those cases where people are healed? What does well mean, physically, spiritually? The Lord will raise them up when, if they've sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other. And pray for each other so that you may be healed. In other words, one of the key ways for praying for one another is not just praying for the body, but also praying for the soul. You might need to sit with that for just a moment. Because around here we pray for a lot of kidneys, and we pray for a lot of livers, and we pray for a lot of hearts, and we pray for a lot of uh, knees, uh, and hips and uh, shoulders and, and man, if it's my knee, hip or shoulder, please pray, 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 pray. So not down on that at all. But how often do we pray for one another's souls? Isn't it interesting that there are two kinds of healing and they're both connected, physical and spiritual, physical health and spiritual health. Pastor Tim Keller has said when you're praying for someone, who's sick, you should never miss an opportunity to pray for spiritual therapy in addition to physical therapy. He said we should always see sickness as an opportunity, at least, for spiritual renewal. You know, there are times in the Gospels where Jesus says that a person's physical sickness is completely disconnected from their sin. And yet there are other times when, uh, in the Bible, where sickness and sin are interconnected. And we do know that there are some kinds of sin that are especially hard on our physical health, aren't they? And we also know sometimes God punishes sin with sickness. It's just one of those mysteries. But I think it's really interesting that when the elders are anointing someone because of physical sickness, the sick person should be given an opportunity to confess their sins and to experience a kind of powerful cleansing. And I would say during the times that I've anointed people with oil, this has been One of the most amazing parts for me is that time of confession. There was a preacher of another generation, his name was Haddon Robinson, and he used two 
words to describe how God responds to the prayer of faith. And uh, one is in your dictionary and one he made up. But I think, and they sound similar, and I think they're both important. He said, sometimes when we pray for physical healing, there is an intervention. That's the dictionary word. God intervenes. God either works through natural means or medicine or supernatural means to bring about healing. And all of us know stories, right, of, of where we pray for somebody who was very sick and the doctors say, I don't know what happened. I, the doctors can't explain it. But somehow God brought about physical healing. It was an intervention. But then there was a second word that this is the one that Haddon Robinson invented. And he called it an intervention. An intervention. In other words, sometimes the illness is not healed. God does not intervene in the physical illness. To use the Apostle Paul's term, the thorn in the flesh is not taken away. And yet, perhaps through confession, perhaps through an inner experience of grace, God gives that person inner faith, inner strength to bear up under the sickness and the suffering. And so James says, confess your sin to one another as you pray. Now listen, I I know this is challenging. Uh, There are likely people here right now in the room who are dealing uh, with serious illness, I am, feel very confident that, that there are some of you who are joining us online and you are dealing with scary physical illness right now. And all these things we're talking about, they are not theoretical for you. And so I, I want us to, to think about this with, with prayer um, and, and, and with trust. But I want to ask you, how does this whole notion of confessing your sins to one another. How does that even strike you today? Are some of you wondering how James snuck that into a Protestant Bible? Uh, did you think that was exclusively a Catholic thing? Right? When I was in, um, in Rome in, in the fall um, at the Vatican, St. Peter's Basilica, one of, the, one of the many things that fascinated me were the different uh, designs of, of confession booths. And uh, you would see these uh, booths and uh, they would have little signs on them that said what language the priest spoke and when he was going to be there and, and you could kind of show up and, and you could confess your sins. Uh, if you were Catholic, you could confess your sins to, to the priest. And some of us, when we think of confession, that's, that's what we think of. And of course, we who are Protestant, we who are Baptist, we know that we don't need a human mediator to confess to God that Jesus is our mediator. And yet sometimes one of the most powerful things we can do spiritually is to confess our sins to a fellow believer. In fact, especially if we've wronged them, it's, uh, that's not an option, that's a command, right? To, to confess your sin to someone you've wronged. But sometimes even speaking of your sin to someone you haven't wronged, but just, just speaking and confessing your sin to a fellow believer And to hear them say either, I forgive you if you wrong them, or you know Jesus forgives you for all of that, is so powerful. Now, as Amy mentioned earlier, we're in the season where we're asking people to kind of risk a little more transparency with one another. And I know that this whole idea of of confessing sin to one another is, is, is very stretching. And probably all of us have been in situations where there were oversharers, 
who said things publicly that probably should have been said kind of more privately or one-on-one and uh, made everybody feel uncomfortable and didn't edify anybody. We've, we've been there, right? But at the same time, I think there's something so freeing about confessing our sin and being reminded of God's forgiveness. So church, let's pray for one another. In the season where we're asking God to help us go deeper, what if we took little calculated risks to share a little more of our souls with one another? Douglas Moo has said that, that mutual confession is greatly beneficial to the spiritual vitality of a church. Isn't that interesting? Who knows how God may want us to grow more deeply this spring as we practice this. So I step back. Amidst all my questions, I step back, verse 13, by all means pray. That seemed very clear. And, and with all my questions in the middle part of the passage, by all means pray for one another, seemed very clear to me. Pray for one another's physical uh, illnesses, pray for one another's souls, and in the process, pray for confession and healing of our sin. But then one other theme seemed to stand out to me, and that is by all means pray boldly. By all means, pray boldly. We're introduced in this section, this final section of our passage, verses 17 and 18, um, to a prophet from the Old Testament, pretty well-known Old Testament prophet named Elijah with a J. And uh, he lived during a very corrupt era of Israel's history where Israel's kings, who were supposed to be leading the nation to worship the God of Abraham, were instead uh, uh, worshiping other idols. And and Elijah is just like one guy, but he prays. <laughs> and, uh, and Elijah was not a fan of wimpy prayers. So uh, in verse 17 and 18, we're told that Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He's one of us. Uh, he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. He's an ordinary human being. He's not a superhero. If you've read the story of Elijah, you know he could be cranky. Uh, you know that, uh, uh, that he could be really bold at times and then really fearful at other times. He, he ran away from Queen Jezebel. Uh, you know that there was a season in his life when he was depressed and God ministered to him and he was very defensive as God was trying to reorient him. He was a guy just like us, but he knew a secret that we sometimes forget. And that secret in verse 16 is that the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. In other words, the prayer of someone who righteously calls on God in faith can have a powerful impact. Um, in Elijah's case, when Israel was very far from God, Elijah prayed that God would break Israel's pride and unfaithfulness through an act of judgment by stopping the rain. And uh, and it, and. and Elijah prayed, and God did that for years. Because, you know, sometimes the only way God gets our attention is through pain. God has tried every other way, and we've said, not listening, not listening, not listening. And then pain and judgment come. And suddenly we're open to things of the Spirit. But then Elijah prayed again, and God opened the heavens and rained down his mercy. Now, I have to tell you, I've never seen anybody pray for a three-year drought, and if I saw them, I might try to stop them. <laughs> I've never seen that before. 
But I have witnessed testimony of bold prayer. I've seen mothers pray for prodigal children for years. And I've watched how God used droughts in their children's life to soften their hearts. And I've seen God use showers of mercy to bring them home. I've seen God use quiet, bold prayers for ministries that just seemed dead. And God used those prayers to cause a renewal that surprised everybody. And whenever it's happened, I just can't help but think somebody somewhere has been praying. And not a timid prayer, a biggie-sized prayer, a bold prayer, a powerful, effective prayer. One of my deepest prayers for us, for myself and for us, is that we would be a praying church. One of my deepest prayers for us is that we would see the words of Jesus come true in our midst, that we would be a house of prayer for all people. North, south, east, and west, rushing in to pray. Paul Miller said that this is who Jesus is. Jesus, he said, was the most dependent person who ever lived. Jesus was constantly dependent upon God in prayer. And yet sometimes we think, well, Jesus needed that. (laughs) Yeah, Jesus needed prayer, but we don't. What would it look like for us? to recommit ourselves to prayer, to praying boldly, to praying for one another. I was thinking how cool it would be to walk the halls of VRBC some Sunday morning, or maybe Sunday afternoon, or maybe Wednesday night, and somebody in 234 is just singing a song of praise and thanksgiving to God. And then you keep walking, and somebody in 235 just crying out to God for intervention or intervention. And then in 236, some leaders are struggling around someone who's, who's sick and praying for them. And then you walk past 237 and you can't hear the details, but you know that someone is confessing their sin to someone else and that other person is reminding the confessor that Jesus forgives everything. And then you walk past 238 and someone is testifying to healing in their life. And then in the lobby, someone's praying for strength to deal with a terrible trial. And then back in the the prayer garden, there's somebody that usually sits on the back row and none of us know them. And they're praying a prayer that is so bold, it would knock your socks off if you heard it. Lord, May that be us, a people who pray, a people who pray lovingly and vulnerably and transparently for one another, and a people who pray boldly. Oh, Lord, thank you for these words. Thank you for these words that reassure us of the significance of prayer Lord, thank you for these words that stretch us, um, that, that cause us to reach and to think new thoughts about what you are calling us to do and to be as a people. Lord, thank you for this reminder 
that, that we don't need to live in our own strength. That you give us a power that is so much bigger than us. That you have a vision that sees so much deeper than we do. That you have a plan, Lord, that, that our minds cannot comprehend. And that you choose to work when your people pray. So Lord, call us to prayer. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.